something that I'm going to bring up that is going to sound political, but it really isn't, <laughs> or maybe it is. Um, is that I have, so I have kids, I have small kids. I've got, well, I mean, they're still young to me. I've got twins that are 10, so they're in fourth grade. And then I've got a 14 year old who just finished ninth grade. And one of the things that became, um, an interesting topic of conversation in our household was that there's no school deaths. There's not been a single school shooting since March. We have a huge epidemic of deaths that are caused in the United States from gun violence that occur in schools. So closing down our schools actually saved kids' lives. And that's something that I think we should also be talking about as we're talking about what our new normal is gonna be going forward. Because the reality is, is there's a lot of threats to our existence um, just on an individual level. And COVID-19 is one of them, certainly. Um, but there's other ones as well. And so as we start to talk about these long-term impacts and these, you know, these trolley events, right? So five people down this way and one person down this way. Yeah, yeah. I think that, yeah, I think that this is the thing is that we've got, we don't have school shooting deaths. We've got a much smaller um, motor vehicle accident death. I'd be willing to bet across the U.S. We had a, a yeah. you know, accidental um, deaths due to cars. I suspect we're seeing more deaths due to domestic violence. You know, so I, I feel like we've shifted some numbers around um, rather than just, you know, eliminating all deaths for all causes or these increased deaths, which I do know that the um, mental health and suicide death rates, those are ones that I know that we've all been worried about too. And I suspect that there probably have been some increases there. So I think that ultimately there is no one right answer for how we move forward and creating our new normal. But I, I think it's highly unlikely that our new normal is gonna look exactly like our old normal did. You're listening to The Grindstone, a philosophy podcast from Purdue University. When I sat down to record the preface to the first episode of our COVID-19 series, it was around 3 p.m. on Sunday, the 14th of June, 2020. When this, the last episode of our COVID-19 series, drops, it will be two months later to the day. In that preface, I commented on how different that mid-June afternoon was from afternoons just two months prior to it. In mid-April, Indiana was in the middle of our stay-at-home orders, as was much of the rest of the country. The nation was wrestling with the dilemma of whether or not to shut down our state and local economies and for how long to shut them down to, borrowing here a commonly used phrase at the time, quote-unquote, flatten the curve of the spreading coronavirus. So to see something like regular traffic out my window on the 14th of June gave the impression that things were working their way back to normal, whatever, quote-unquote, normal may be. But that traffic was a mirage of sorts. There was, and perhaps is, no oasis in the reachable distance. People were out and about, congregating, commerce was churning along, with some restrictions in place. And here in Indiana, at least, the number of infections and the rate of spread looked manageable. 
In other places around the country and the world, similar circumstances were presenting themselves. A facade of returning to business as usual, albeit a physically distance usual wearing a facial covering. Well, if it had any good sense about it, that is. But behind all of that, COVID-19 was continuing to spread its way around the country and the world. And as some places reopened their economies, feeling comfortable with their rates of transmission and their ability to test for, contact trace, and treat the virus, other places were overzealous in their haste to reopen, yet to truly confront the initial peak of their portion of the crisis. To update listeners on how the numbers have gotten worse here in the U.S. seems like an exercise in describing avoidable outcomes of exercises in futility. Look, we can all jump online and look up the number of fatalities in the U.S. to date, the current rate and spread of the infection, the unemployment numbers. Simply put, the United States has not handled this pandemic well. But as we sit here five months after those of us at Purdue University received an email telling us that we would be shifting to remote learning, teaching, and working after spring break, I personally feel both as though this was to be expected and that no one could have convinced me that this is what mid-August would look like, feel like, be like. And as I look out my window today and see cars on their way to work, running errands, heading to appointments like any old normal weekday, I wonder if those streets will be mandated to be empty again in the future, or if we will just keep on driving around and doing what we do while a silent, tasteless, odorless antagonist continues to ravage our public health, our economy, our communities, our livelihoods, and in a sense, our way of life. What will our world look like this time next year if things continue to get worse? And will it ever look like it did this time a year ago? What is our baseline for quote-unquote normal after all of this is over? And I think I speak for many of us when I ask, when is it just going to be over? In today's episode, our guests share their thoughts on life during and after the pandemic. They discuss technology's role in our experience of this pandemic, what the economic crisis might mean for the future, what we can expect as we return to school, when we can expect things to return to normal, whether or not such a thing is possible, and what positive societal growth may come out of these challenges. Caroline and I are going to take a step back today, leaving aside the narrative to let our amazing guests' insightful, challenging, and inspiring voices do the talking, with some new sounds provided by Alterity to accompany them. We'll check in soon with our reflections on the series and our plans for the fall. In the meantime, we hope you enjoy today's episode as much as we have enjoyed sharing all of these episodes with you. This is the Grindstone Podcast COVID-19 series, brought to you at a distance with the same amount of love as we expressed in the preface, but with a distinctly different level of hope, from West Lafayette, Indiana, and many other locations across the country. Take care and thanks for listening. It's certainly true that whatever disrupts our society brings about an opportunity that changes. It's certainly true that whatever disrupts our social networks, our, our social institutions, reveals some of their flaws in them, right? It's like you, you see what's wrong with a thing when it stops working, right? When, it, when, a, when a thing no longer works, you say, hmm, you know, this is, I, I see which parts of it were messed up such that it didn't work so well. Well, can we, can we, can we, uh, Use that as an, an analogy for the whole of our society. Well, you know, maybe to some level we can. You know, what would we like to see different? Um, for one thing, you know, I think about you know economic planning. Uh, why is it the case that individuals are supposed to have saving savings, but corporations don't have savings? That governments have social safety nets, but not health-related social safety nets. With your employer, you get sick days, right? Well, why is there not a plague budget? 
it's, it's because the, the economy that we live in uh, is in fact based on precariousness. We live in a capitalistic society that rewards precariousness, it rewards risk-taking. Most businesses operate uh, at a level which is not prepared for one month of shutdown or two months. We individual humans, even though we also live that way uh, by and large, and there's a lot of economic data that shows that Americans, especially today, we live in a way which is not well planned for, right? We're not, we're not prepared for disasters, but we're derided for it. We're encouraged to do so. So it's like you might have personal savings that will enable you to get to four months unemployment or six months unemployment. If you do that, you're unlike almost every business in America. Why do we take the short-sighted approach to economic that we do collectively? Our school systems uh, are going to be harmed by this. Our healthcare systems are going to be harmed by this. Who knows what's going to happen to uh, long-term care for the elderly? Who knows mm. what's going to happen to, you know, meatpacking uh, industries, places that have really suffered for this. So the consequences could be real, but there are parts of the world that have been revealed to us as a result of COVID-19. We do have an opportunity to, to improve upon. Anytime that I'm looking up the numbers from the Great Depression, that is a bad sign for the economy. These like era defining events where, mm-hmm. where we really do sort of recalibrate. I mean, I made a joke earlier about changing the axes, right? And so anytime yeah. that we get so far outside of the normal bounds of things that we are like reformatting our time series figures to show these crazy numbers, I mean, that that is like very telling. So I think this idea that this is sort of unprecedented makes us rethink things is, is actually very much on point. So I was talking about the BLS and their job surveys. They've only been tracking these numbers since 1948. So they don't even actually have the official data from the Great Depression. Um, so mm. we're using different historical data to make those comparisons. But it's worth noting that in this, this document that they put out today, they said three or four different times, this is the lowest or this is the highest it has been since we started recording this. Um, and so, so that's always going to be a problem when you know, we've got you know, 70 years of data um, and we get, you know, a handful of points a year, but, um, but we are going to, because of that, find ourselves in these extreme scenarios more frequently than we would in other types of, of data analysis. So I think sometimes it makes us, as a field, sort of stop and step back. You know, we never thought about interest rates going this low before. We never thought about negative oil prices as something that could actually happen that has happened in yeah. the last month, which really just means like storing it isn't worth it, is what that means. Like the cost to store it is not as like, you know, worthwhile as the the oil itself. So, so anytime we're faced with these, we we do kind of stop and step back and and rethink. Okay, like what are the premises that this is really really challenging for us um, as a field? And we do rely a lot on math. A lot of it is sort of calculus based. These models that you know, it's it's actually very fulfilling in a very simple way. That when you first start sort of graduate level economic training, you really are building up our entire sort of worldview and framework from some very simple relationships about people's preferences across goods and options. And, you know, it's just very, very, I don't know, appealing that we start from this very fundamental framework. But we do often find ourselves sort of ex post realizing that there are a lot of scenarios that we're, we're like, wait, I didn't even know it was possible. How do we fit this into what we know? So it is, it is absolutely throwing many of us for a complete loop right now. Effectively, you know what what the shutdown did, and I think healthcare providers understood this, is to slow down the wildfire long enough 
to uh, hopefully have more PPE for healthcare providers, hopefully develop advancements in treatment, hopefully allow hospitals to build the resources and capacities so they could take care of these patients. Uh, that was the purpose of the shutdown. Uh, unless you were in a country that had low enough transmission initially that was aggressive enough with contact tracing to shut down additional transmission in New Zealand's kind of the, the poster child for that. And it was a closed enough, it's an island, right? So it was a closed enough society. Then it's always been about delaying the spread of the wildfire long enough that hopefully we have enough resources to take care of everyone that gets sick. Hopefully we've made some medical advances so you're less likely to get critically ill and die if you get sick. And hopefully we're closer to a vaccine and hopefully we have better testing strategies and hopefully we have more protective equipment for everyone. It's all about that. And so that's what the shutdown was. And certainly in our country, uh, you were nowhere near eradicating the wildfire, which is the term I like to use. We're in the middle of a post-truth pandemic. I want to contextualize my elaboration of that statement by referencing I had said in the previous segment. I asked yep. you to think about plague, and I said plague is caused by a bacterium, which is transmitted by fleas, but no one who suffered from the plague understood any of that, which hmm. is to say that the people who were suffering in a plague outbreak didn't know what was causing the plague outbreak. They didn't know how, what they could do to end it. They didn't know how it would end, how long it would last. Of course, a lot of mythologies arrive under, arrive under circumstances like that. So our situation is not necessarily the worst possible situations. It's just very different. We have different science, different politics, and different technology. And it's the mm -hmm. relationship among those three things that we need to understand if we're going to understand the world we live in in the context of COVID-19 or otherwise. So science, politics, technology. How do these three things relate to each other? And we have to, we have to try to piece that apart. There were always you know, people trying to fight against these public health measures. Um, I believe the Spanish flu, just going back to that again for a second, there were people who didn't want to wear masks or you know, were sort of rejecting the public health guidelines. So just thinking about today i think more than ever there's probably um more politics in medicine if you're supporting these public health measures are you politically affiliated in some way just thinking about masks versus not masks so if somebody is looking at you for wearing a mask they must be thinking you're gullible and you're letting this disease control your life and you know just those sort of thoughts can automatically creep up if you have that those political ideas in mind for what your response is to the disease, I guess. I think that's more prevalent now than ever. But trust the science, uh, or trust the scientists, trust the experts, yeah. uh, is the advice we want to give. It's the advice we want to follow. 
but we know when we say it, we know when we hear it, that nothing is that simple. Who are the experts? Yeah. What does it mean to trust them? Under what circumstances do we trust them? And you know, we go from there. So science, we would like to learn the science, reach scientific solutions. On the basis of that, make political decisions, you know, let policy follow the science and use technology to execute both, right? So it's like mm. we have, I think most of us have in our heads this idea about how science, politics, and technology should work. Call it the naive view, right? And I don't mean naive in a bit. Mm. Uh, I was living in the naive view when, when uh, COVID-19 started, when, when the quarantine started. You know, I'm a philosophy professor. I believe in science. I'm in favor of vaccination. I'm not a scientist in our definition of science, but I, I work with them. I trust them. When I go to the doctor, I trust the doctor, right? So I'm, I'm, I'm very much in favor of that. Now, when the, the World Health Organization declared this a global pandemic, I started following mm -hmm. epidemiologists on Twitter. And I was very happy to follow epidemiologists on Twitter. And I, I was very proud of the world we live in. Technology has enabled scientists to communicate with the public in a way that would or could or should inform us about the decision-making process that we're going to engage in socially, individually, and all of that. Uh, we're in a much better circumstance than a lot of other people were in that regard. If you read, uh, for instance, Daniel Defoe's A Journal of the Plague Year, about the plague in the, in, in the 1660s uh, in London, uh, and he begins it by saying, back then, we didn't have printed newspapers. Right, so this is written in the 1730s, you know, half century later, uh, more than a half century later. He said, back then we didn't have printed newspapers. So the first thing he has to describe is how he found out that the plague was coming back. Well, how did he find out that the plague was coming back? Some people had been in Holland and they came home and they said the plague is in Holland. If the plague is in Holland, it'll, it'll inevitably get here. How do they know that? I don't know. They have to know how fleas are going to travel. But that's beside the point. So there's a certain science. They don't even know what causes plague, a bacterium particular bacterium. And there's a certain process of information, uh, the circulation of information based on the limited technology. Okay, so, so let's look at that. Now look at where we are. We have Twitter. We have institutes for epidemiology. So we have all these things. I can access epidemiologists who are giving good, clear-headed explanations of what's going on in the latest COVID research in a matter of minutes because of my functioning, high-functioning, high-speed Wi-Fi connection here in my home. So it's, we're in a very good situation like that. We have technology. We have science. The progress of the science concerning infectious diseases in the past two centuries has been amazing. We have vaccines. We know so much about infectious disease relative to what people know. Just the mass amount of information we can access on a daily basis. It's almost overwhelming, I think. Every day you can get a new study from, you know, the CDC or a new article talking about something new that's been found out about the disease. And it can cause a lot of confusion as to who you should be listening to. So trying to navigate all that information and what exactly it means can be really difficult. Throw even into that mix the sort of haze of epistemic pollution that, that hovers over our media environment right now. You know, people don't know what to believe and you can find contrasting information upon basically anything you want. So, so, so that, that sort of doubt thrown into the mix, I think, lessens the urgency. 
the, the circulation of information in our world is heavily politicized. I mean, I'm a Gen Xer. So the, the millennials are more at home in post-truth than I am. But we know today that uh, our, our receipt of scientific information is never quite free of politics in the pernicious sense, right? And, and you know, when we say politics, we just say, well, what, is, what does politics even mean? And what we're really talking yes. about is uh, propagandizing, um, you know, misleading spread of information or, or, or spread of misleading information so as to swing the views of the public in a certain direction to benefit. Yeah, so, so now this is what happened. I'm following these epidemiologists on Twitter and it, and it very quickly becomes apparent that the Harvard epidemiologists are debating with the Stanford ep epidemiologists. The Stanford epidemiologists are trying to give a more optimistic account of COVID-19, of the, the novel coronavirus. They're trying to give a picture of the serological data, of the data about the death rates, um, hmm. that leads to a lower death toll or lower death rate estimate. Uh, whereas the Harvard epidemiologists are, are, are giving a higher one. Well, all of a sudden, the Stanford epidemiologists are being cited by right-wing news media outlets, and the Harvard epidemiologists are being cited by left-wing news media outlets. And mm. now, it's, it, like, it took me a couple of weeks to figure this out because I was still in my, you know, enlightenment phase. I was still in my trying <laughs> to separate from politics is separate from technology. Uh, and then I realized, wait a minute, I'm getting all this on Twitter anyway. Twitter operates according to an algorithm, uh, which is telling me what I should get based on something that I don't well understand. So I won't elaborate that. Uh, so you have like, <laughs> politics is already mixed in with the technology and it's mixed in with the science in ways that we don't know. And we mean politics in the pernicious sense. And then when we look at politics in, you know, in the standard sense, you know, how does that get impacted by this? The fact that Donald Trump is our president tells us we're in a post-truth era, all right? It, it's, it's, it's not about expertise anymore. Um, we know that the scientific information we, we receive is already politicized. So then when there are people whispering in, in, in our ears, hmm. that don't believe any of that, or you only believe that because you got it from these sources. We also know, as right. much as we're tempted to be annoyed by that, we also know that they're a little bit right. I do believe what I believe because I've been told to believe <laughs> by the sources that get, you know, put in front of my face according to some calculus. So human relationship to technology, let's just start with the, you know, the triad that this, this segment began with, science, politics, and technology. The question is, how do they relate to each other in a given context or at a given time? Earlier, I said one of the interesting things about pandemics is that they're about relationships between humans and bacteria or humans and viruses. So it's relationship to something that we don't well understand and how does that, they, they impact us, but we don't understand how they do so. And that's the story of humans and infectious diseases, or that's the basis of the story of humans and infectious diseases. Now we're talking about humans and technology. Technology is pervasive. So what is the relationship between humans and technology? There are basically two narratives in the philosophy of technology. One optimistic narrative that says technology has improved human life and technology fundamentally improves human life. And, you know, we're living in a technological age and our lives are so much better than it was for these, you know, cave people uh, because we have smartphones and, you know, whatever. 
And then there's the reverse narrative, which uh, most philosophy students are familiar with through Heidegger, but you know there are very there, there are different variations on it. Heidegger thinks that technology covers over uh, the reality of our of the human experience. When we look at the two sides of it, we see that technology improves our lives and technology damages us by changing who we are and making us dependent on this. Now, at some level, everyone knows this. Smartphones are awesome because I can FaceTime my mother who lives 630 miles away. I can FaceTime her. That's a great thing. It keeps me in touch with her. Smartphones are dangerous because they potentially damage our memory. They damage our attention span and they're addicting. They make us susceptible to manipulation by the algorithm writers of Twitter and Facebook, right? So it's like, so how is the technology impacting us? Well, we don't always know, just as we don't always know how the bacteria and the viruses are impacting us. So the human relationship to technology is a complex one. So when we're looking at the human relationship to the technology in the context of something like COVID-19, we are possessed of an ability to combat the infectious disease in a way that previous people who did not have access to the technology can combat it. We can communicate the information very quickly. Well, then it depends what we do with that information, right? So the technology gives us power. However, the technology can also be very dangerous. Um, I mean, if you look at the great uh, technological leaps in human history, you can ask yourselves, well, how were they used? To, to better human lives. And you can say, how were they used to destroy human lives, right? And, and you're gonna get answers on both sides of these things. After the flu epidemic, the flu pandemic in 1918, there was a lot of social structure innovation that happened directly because of the fact that a lot of these inequities in society were really visualized because of this pandemic of disease. So I think that we're experiencing something similar now and that we're starting to see um, some of the cracks in society. Those are cracks that already existed. They weren't created by the pandemic. They're ones that it's like the pandemic shone a light through them. And so now we see them, the onus is on us to address them and to do things differently and to create structure for how we fix some of these gaps in our society, how we fix them so that we're in a more robust position should there be another pandemic. That said, I think we're not going to be done with this one for a while. My hope is that we as a society take this as a call to action and we actually then follow through with it that we develop innovative pipelines for vaccine development, that we understand public health on a national level in a way that is more robust and real than the way that we have previously in our society. I also think that there's gonna be some other things that might just be more practical things that we can do that will not just stop disease spread, but also you know, the lack of global travel right now has done wonders for our world's environment. I mean, there's pros and cons to all of it, but I think that I think that going forward, I think that we do need to be conscious about the way that we move forward as a society, so that we're not just planning to return to the old status quo, but that we are picking and choosing the pieces of the way we used to do things that will still work for us in this new world. Because I can't imagine 
that we're going to end up in a society that hasn't been impacted by COVID-19 in, in every possible way. Will it lead us to have more respect for um, what we used to call unskilled labor? Uh, much mm. of what used to be called unskilled labor is actually now called essential labor. You know, what's essential to a car? An engine is essential to a car. Um, you know, maybe a, you know, a sun visor is not. The car will drive even if there's no sun visor. Or won't drive if there, if there aren't, you know, certain parts of the engine and so forth, right? So it's, it makes sense to decide essential, to divide essential from unessential labor. Um, but what are we going to learn with the prominence of this division? And are, are, we going to, are we going to learn more respect for mail carriers, grocery store employees? What are we going to learn about our health care? Whereas with the Great Recession, I feel like we kind of learned a lesson about predatory lending and speculation in housing. We learned some lessons, but those were sort of related to sort of man-made problems in a lot of ways. Whereas this is much more like the Great Depression and the systematic change will probably need to happen. Then it was, some of it was related to things like the Dust Bowl. And now we're thinking, you know, maybe this is what makes us think about climate change. And, you know, like there's, this is a huge moment in terms of the economy potentially pivoting. With all of these changes and the rises in prices, the loss of income and livelihoods for lots of people. The other issue, and when you look at that in a global sense, is, is places where there's conflict. So places where there were already problems, you know, like Yemen or um, elsewhere where there's conflicts or there have been environmental disasters, refugees, like there's some really very, very vulnerable people out there. And so they were already at risk and this, this puts them at even greater risk. I can't say with any kind of certainty, like when things will, you know, prices will go down, but one thing that will change is People's ability to afford even the prices that we used to have has definitely changed because a lot of people have lost their their incomes and their livelihoods. And so, even if even if prices went back to what they were, um, I think there's still there's still going to be a lot of consequences that we're going to have to face. Um, and and it's a, a global a global thing, and it will last, I think, longer. The consequences of that are, are likely to last longer than kind of the acute illness part of this pandemic. I would say that one one thing that we can compare is the fact that there was a lot of talk early on in this economic recession, <laughs> uh, before we could even officially call it that, about whether it would be a V-shaped or a U-shaped recovery. The idea being a V is like it drops down, it comes right back up. That's cool if you can manage that. But we're much more likely to be in something that requires like a more systematic change to our economy. When we think about the Great Depression, we saw a lot of that. I mean, we saw a lot of people moving across cities to take different kinds of jobs. I mean, my own great-grandfather moved from, you know, farming in Alabama and Mississippi up to work in Chicago and, you know, selling shoes. So, like, you see a lot of people having to really sort of change their role in the economy. That might be something that we see. The other thing that we might see that maybe isn't quite so related to, to the Great Depression is, you know, the change the way that we manufacture things. You know, if it's really risky to have people next to each other on the line in a manufacturing plant, we might see further mechanization because robots can't get a virus. So we might we might see some much larger systematic changes to our economy. And those will take a long time. Those will those will result in a really slow recovery, is what I'm trying to say. I think we're headed to systematic change to our overall economy. 
you can you can argue all day about what ended the Great Depression. <laughs> You'll hear lots of people argue about was it the war, was it FDR's policies, like you know what could it have been? Oh, you know, I'm I'm going to remain agnostic on that. But I think that we shouldn't expect everything to go back to normal, even if we have some type of vaccine in the next three months. I don't think the economy is going to be the same again. I think that might be the lesson to take away from the Great Depression is that everything really changed. Hopefully this makes people aware and kind of think about what's what's happening and kind of the realities of, of food insecurity. Like, that's not new in America, unfortunately. And, and maybe it's easy to hide still and easy not to, like, notice. But maybe we'll think differently now with everything that's happening. And so I think what the population as a whole, and I think we all call this COVID fatigue, right? We were just tired of being cooped up and not talking to people and seeing people and going out and about. But if anything, we started opening up at a much more dangerous time. There was much more community transmission than it was at the beginning of March. Uh, many more people with the virus out there. And so there was this sense that we're over, we can go back to uh, the way we were. We're just at the beginning. It is kind of not correct to use the terminology as second wave when you're not out of your first wave yet. Second wave means you got out of your first wave. And I think that, if anything, the past couple of weeks have clearly illustrated uh, that we are still in the thick of the first wave and still might be on the front end of the first wave and on the back of it. So I think what most healthcare providers believed was going to happen is happening. And that is this belief that it was a New York problem, you know, and the rest of the country is okay, was just a matter of time. So yes, because of the population densities in big cities, they uh, achieved high levels of community transmission uh, very, very early. But it was always understood by the healthcare community that that wave would continue into uh, rural communities as it spread out to the country. And since cities are not sequestered islands, as much as some people would like for them to be, they are not sequestered islands. You know, we're still in the point where the wildfire is on its first spread. We were able to tamp it down in areas where it was already spreading pretty rapidly with physical distancing and masking, but the wildfire was still spreading. And so the reopening uh, that we saw that started before Memorial Day and with the gatherings of Memorial Day, we're now seeing the results of that. We're seeing record numbers of infections uh, occurring on a daily basis in multiple states. We're now going through this big national conversation about when do schools start back? How can you safely start schools back? What is safe? You know, we know that the loss of educational gain that comes from school being let out, kids don't get that back. You know, that is totally missed learning. I mean, you you don't get that back. And so it is incumbent upon us to figure out how to get kids educated. And the younger they are, uh, the less likely any remote things like virtual education is going to be 
helpful at all. Uh, children do not learn in virtual environments, period. Um, and so then being out of school from um, educational mental health development is a disaster. And so then the question is how, how do we safely go down that pathway? Uh, because children have to learn. I mean, they will not get that back. And that's out of my bailiwick. I certainly can't answer those questions, but that's part of the big discussion. And so much of that is a challenge because we just don't know. We don't know what the rate of transmission in preschools is because they were all shut down, right? They all got shut down. So we don't know that. We don't know what is the risk to the teachers in that school environment because they haven't been in it. Everyone was at home. Uh, what is the risk of those children bringing it home to their parents and grandma getting it? We don't know the answer to that. So that's some of the questions that we're going to be experimenting with as a society. And, you know, I talk about frequently about that mental health versus physical health balance that we need to continually talk about in society is nothing is risk-free. So what can we do that might increase the physical risk a little bit, as everything does, unless we live in a bubble, but is worth it from a mental health perspective. Because undoubtedly, the ending of distancing and mixing people is going to increase transmission risk. But maybe that's no big deal in preschools. Maybe, you know, very few of those kids are going to get sick. And But when you talk about people that focus on uh, children's brain development um, and the milestones of brain development and what they need to be exposed to for ongoing healthy brain development, you know, these past four months is a disaster. What happens when you bring 10,000 people back to campus? We don't know, but I would bet on the virus. I would bet on the virus because even though college students are probably better than preschool students at physically distancing, I would say probably not too much better. <laughs> I would say that's a small effect. So I just don't think you can count based on that. When you see the Memorial Day weekend scenes on beaches and parks, people just do not seem to get it yet. You know, and that is we are still in the wave. And so, yes, putting 10,000 people in an enclosed space is scary to me. Uh, but we have to have those conversations, right? Because you don't get your college years back, right? You don't get that opportunity to learn. You don't get that back. So what can we do as a society that's safe to a lot of degrees? It's a huge experiment uh, as to what's going to happen on the Purdue campus in August. And we don't know what's going to happen with that. Let me allude to kind of second wave and what is going to happen in the fall. The answer is we don't really know. In general, viral transmission rapidly picks up in the fall and peaks in the wintertime. And so that could certainly happen and could certainly, in a lot of people's minds, make us think that it might be even worse 
uh, with the coronavirus. We still don't know enough about it to know about its seasonality. You know, we know that flu doesn't go away. You know, you can get flu in the middle of the summer, but it's uh, rare enough and the transmission of it is low level enough that it's unlikely that you do that. And we don't know enough about the seasonality of coronavirus because we've not been through anything more than, you know, a season and a half. So we just don't know the answer to that. Uh, It could be that we become good enough as a society with physical distancing and masking that all the other viral infections are much, much better this coming winter. Uh, because, you know, one of the things that happened is we were in a flu epidemic when coronavirus hit. And flu epidemics, and this is a bit sobering, you know, in general are driven by children. Children are the transmissible agents for flu. So children transmitting it in school settings, then bringing it home to their families and who bring it to the workplace, you know, is how flu gets spread around. And the flu epidemic evaporated pretty quickly when we got shut down and uh, that all went away Um, and so the question is what's that going to look like when it comes back and i think some of that depends is on how serious as a society we are in maintaining physical distancing there are two things that are going to end this pandemic and you know one is what they call herd immunity from natural infection and that is enough people have gotten the virus, that a virus is unlikely to find a person around it who's susceptible to it. You know, so the uh, analogy is a forest that's already burned and you don't have any trees that can still burn, right? So the virus has no place to go. So that's called herd immunity. And I think, I believe what I've read, I'm not a virologist, but I've read, you know, you need at least 60, 70% or more people with immunity to the virus to have natural herd immunity. And so, you know, we're nowhere near that. And we don't know what immunity to the virus looks like. We don't know that if you've been exposed to it, what your degree of immunity is, how strong that is, how long that lasts. And then the other is vaccine. And you know, in general, successful vaccines from, and I'm saying successful vaccines, and I'll emphasize that from uh, time of conception to marketplace is almost never less than five years. Um, so this heroic effort to uh, come up with the vaccine. I hope it might very well be successful. We might have the resources and medical knowledge that it can be done in less than five years. But um, I like to remind people we still don't have an HIV vaccine, um, uh, you know, even though we're, you know, half a century into that epidemic. And uh, so viruses sometimes are, can be pretty smart. And so there's still a lot of unknowns, but a lot of things that suggest that we're going to be in this situation for a long time before we're safe as a society. And and I don't think anyone really knows what the fall is going to look like, but I would bet on the virus probably that we're going to be in the same situation. And I think most people, you know, if you said, gosh, when, when do you think we're going to be safer and better, you know, I'm looking at 22 and 23 before I can see it in my vision of the way medicine and the world works. We're in this for quite a while.
I've been reflecting a lot on what I'm doing with my life and, and just thinking about where is, in a world where like maybe the resources to do work are going to be even more constrained. And, and, and that's one of the things about public health, like there's never enough money for anything. Everything is important and resources are always so limited. And so just thinking about where to spend, you know, money, um, where, and I'm not talking about research and so I'm just like, and as a, as a world, like as a society, like where do we spend our money? How do we solve these problems? Um, what will be the most effective thing as a person who works in the area? Like how best can I use my time to, to contribute to something that, you know, is going to be urgent and is urgent and just, you know, needs, needs ideas and needs thinking, you know, what my role is in it, what role you know, my students should be like thinking about like what kind of world are they gonna, what they're training to, like when they graduate, what kind of world are they gonna go out into? It's um, it's a lot to to think about, but we'll figure it out. I am an optimist, and so I, I appreciate that. But I also was just thinking, you know, imagine if we come out of this as a society, a group of people who actually care about each other's well-being. I mean. All it takes is wearing a mask in public to signal to my fellow humans that I care about their health and their well-being and I care about them as individuals. I mean, that's a huge difference. That would impact everything in life. So even just a little shift, a tiny shift, where just as a nation, we walk forward out of this with our minds in a place of caring about the entire public health and not just our own individual public, you know, our own individual level health, but health of all of us as a nation, that'd be an amazing step forward. And it would have huge impacts on everything, including how we legislate things and how we fund things um, politically. So yeah, that would be huge. I mean, it's hard not to be optimistic when you think of that as a potential outcome. Grindstone is brought to you by the Department of Philosophy at Purdue University and is supported by the College of Liberal Arts at Purdue. Our intro and outro music is by Al Terity. You can follow the Department of Philosophy at Purdue on Facebook at Philosophy at Purdue, on Twitter at Philo, all caps, P-H-I-L-O, underscore Purdue, and on Instagram at Philo underscore Purdue. Uh, I don't know if you're a Gen Xer or a millennial, right? But that, but the post-truth. Oh, I am not a millennial. Okay, I guys, I, I, I just I, I, made it.